Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Anne Schmidt, and I'm with the Earth Care Group at IMC. And welcome to the special section about Let Nature Teach You. We have some chatter. I'm not sure what that is, but um, okay. So, Ayasan Tusika um, is here, and Ayachitananda, and they are with Karuna Buddhist Vihara. And what Ayasan Tusika is a Buddhist nun, and she was ordained in 2012 as a bhikkhuni. And she now lives in the hermit, which she hermitage, which she founded. Um, she trained on three continents. I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, in the Thai forest tradition, with the teacher uh, monasteries of Ajahn Chah and his disciples. So she's in Boulder Creek, and we welcome her. We welcome all. And the last thing I want to say is that you should know that this session is being recorded. So thank you all. and. Over to you, Aya Santusika. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, for those people who ordinarily join us at this time on um, 10 o'clock on Saturdays, uh, we still are going to be looking at how do I apply the Dhamma to this? But it's a special session for IMC looking at our, at our Earth and kicking off Earth Week, Vipassana Earth Week. So really, I think the, um, the point of coming together today is to um, really try to look at the state of our natural environment and what we can learn from it and um, recognize, remind ourselves that our entire life depends upon this environment and this the state of this planet and then to really see what actions we can take how we can help restore our nat nat natural environment and so we're going to do some meditation and I don't I see that um, many of you are out in a natural setting and maybe that's a little why our uh, technology was a little uh, challenging this morning, <laughs> but here we are outside instead of inside. And it is a beautiful day. I don't know if where you are, you have uh, clean air or if it's uh, smoky outside, but all of these conditions of our natural world are part of what we want to turn towards this morning. And so I think we'll start with some meditation and um, settle in. So find a comfortable position. And then after the meditation, I'll offer some words of reflection and there'll be time for us to discuss. And all kinds of questions are welcome at that point. So as we find a comfortable position with our spine straight and turn our attention inwards, 
putting our attention on our breath. And on our body. We can observe our in-breath and our out-breath. It's enough to just know now I'm breathing in. And now I'm breathing out. And we don't have to think in-breath and out-breath every time, but we kind of feel it. We come to be so present with the breathing that we can really just feel in-breath and out-breath. And if the breath is a, a difficult object for you, then use some other place, some point in the body or even the whole body as your grounding. And you can put your attention just on your belly. Or just on your heart center. Whatever point of focus helps to become calm and at ease. And as we are aware of our body, we turn our mind inward. We can still observe changing conditions. We can notice our heart beating, perhaps. can feel the changes that come from the in-breath and the out-breath. There might be other sensations in the body that are changing. We've also might notice the changing conditions outside the body. We can be aware of our breathing and still at this point in the meditation, hear the sounds.
when we meditate indoors, we can often do things to help quiet the environment. But when we meditate outdoors, it's entirely out of our control. And that is the natural state of things. Most things are not in our control. And then we have a choice. We can decide how to react, respond, or reflect. We can allow external stimuli to encourage us to turn more deeply inwards. that there is a stillness inside. As we go deeper into meditation, you can locate a stillness that is not dependent upon external conditions. And if it feels like such a still point is far away, then the first thing to do is relax. Because the way to that stillness is through letting go. It's not through effort. No intention is needed and Guiding the mind is necessary. But we can't strive our way to stillness. Clarity. Perseverance. And kindness help us. Encouraging the mind to settle. 
the body to become tranquil and to be at ease and at peace inside. Letting all the change processes ongoing, ongoing activity, let it slip to the background. We ground ourselves with our meditation focus. At ease and at peace. Holding on to nothing.
And now as we come closer to the end of our meditation, we can expand our awareness to our environment. Taking in the feeling of the air on our skin. Taking in whatever sounds there may be. Noticing that we are situated in a context. A context that affects us. And also that we influence. We can't really separate ourselves from that context fully. And we cannot control it fully. But we can be aware and present. And also loving and kind. Oh, welcome back to the world. I'm going to shift my position a little so maybe I can be in the, a bit more in the light. Or maybe I'm a bit more computer at the show. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Well, the lighting is beautiful here, but I'm not sure quite where the computer needs to look. (laughs) Anyway, I just want to really let you know how much I appreciate your being here this morning. Um. And I want to have a really frank conversation about our situation. And, and frank doesn't mean it's all doom and gloom. There's a lot to be really um, inspired by and hopeful for. So I'll start with some reflections, and then we'll open it up to conversation. And um, I want to start with the lessons that we learn from nature. And you, I'm sure, have your own um, list. Um, But I think it might be nice to really consider what it is that nature teaches us and how we might, as practitioners, open up to more of what nature can provide in that regard in terms of the Dhamma. So, of course, one obvious lesson that we that we gain from nature is about change and impermanence. It's constant. And considering the things that have been happening this year to all of us, uh, impermanence is really in our face. So um, that's an obvious one. Nature also clearly reveals dukkha. We see it 
everywhere. Uh, the suffering or the discomfort or the uncertainty, the not not quite satisfying aspect of the natural natural life. One of the things that I think is a little harder for us to accept as human beings is that nature shows us sometimes very dramatically that things are not in our control. Now this is this is a place where human beings have really been striving for maybe forever uh, to gain the upper hand on nature, to bring it under our control. I don't think it was like this always. Uh, I can imagine, and you might well imagine, and maybe you have the kind of background in study that is way beyond mine in terms of like how we developed as human beings. But with my limited knowledge, I think about what it must have been like to be in the hunter-gatherer phase. Oh, by the way, I believe we probably all were there in some form. Um, in some in some previous in in uh, uh, I don't want to say incarnation existence some uh, rebirth but without that we can just imagine perhaps what it might have been like to be living so embedded in nature that we are really just looking for ways to survive. Um, what to eat, I'm sure that human beings at that time had to be extremely tuned in to when something, um, you know, when the berries are ripe, when the, when the roots are ready to eat and um, how to find meat. And, you know, just so many actual, you know, kind of, teachings that must have been part of their daily life. And for us, um, Ayachitananda and my and me, we were living in town for um, most of um, the existence of our monastery. And then a year ago, we moved out into the forest. And it's been an enormous source of wonderful support for our investigating the Dhamma. So as you can see, we're out here. This is uh, the Redwoods in the Santa Cruz Mountains and the wind, the rain or the lack of it. Right, right now our, our water source has gone dry, almost completely dry. We get our water from a spring and it's it's so dry here. It's almost completely diminished to nothing. And so, and the fire, uh, there was one of the big fires was about four or five miles from us. Um, smoke in the air, sometimes it's actually been very light here. I can smell it a little bit today. I hope it's not too bad where you are right now. But it's a constant reminder that for us here, we're off the grid, so our basic utilities, the, the basic needs of water, power, um, warmth, 
cooling, forget that. We just have to you know, like, go down to the creek and get as close to the, the coolness as you can if necessary. But it's, it's really a reminder of how things are not in our control and how um, adjusting to the rhythm of nature is helpful. And then, of course, humanity started to make use of nature in more and more extensive ways with farming. And uh, some of you know I grew up on a farm in, in the Midwest. And it was during a period when there was a lot of attention on progress. Um, my father loved the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago where we could look at the first cotton gin or something like it, or the story of how they developed a you know, harvest, harvesting machine, um, you know, and, and the ways in which human beings made progress in using nature, uh, animals for their milk and meat, uh, you know, breeding animals and developing um, cross-pollinating seeds and developing um, and pushing nature to be more sort of quote-unquote productive. And the result in my lifetime and in many for you also, going from what uh, two and a half billion people on the planet to something like seven something. It's a huge, huge change. And so it's, it's all that progress in utilizing nature and then moving more and more into the realm of controlling or trying to control nature. And as we've seen, there are limits. Even though we can find vaccines, um, you know, we've very ingeniously come up with so many ways to um, improve health and mitigate disease where, and, and uh, increase the abundance of food. There are these downsides. But it's, it's really helpful I, for me, and I don't know how it, how it lands for you, but it's helpful for me to reflect on you know, how understandable it is that we would walk down this path, and that as a species with the mental and creative abilities that we have, why we would you know, get to the place that we are with regard to the, the things that we've produced and the way that we've developed our economies and our lifestyles. We would really like for everything to be comfortable and pleasant all the time. And that's, that's really what humanity has been striving to do, right? We want our, um, our environment in, inside to be climate controlled. Um, we want our food to be you know, healthy and tasty and available uh, without um, having too much trouble to gain it. And so all of these efforts to try to make things better 
have their downside. And as practitioners, we know this is, it's never going to be achievable fully. It doesn't mean, and I, I would hope that you, this comes with a, a kind of acceptance and maybe um, um, interest in how, how we operate and without blame for where we've gotten to, because it's really understandable. And then, you know, to be willing to look at the at the problems and I think for many people right now we're dealing with so much the pandemic fires political turbulence and to name a few that maybe our concerns for the environment have been kind of um, relegated to the shadows and I think all along, I started getting really interested in climate change in particular around 2006. And, and some of you might know that I used to talk about it a lot and I have been doing less of that over the last few years. And I think maybe people feel like either we're doing what we can uh, through our individual efforts, recycling, getting uh, fuel-efficient vehicles, and there are lots of good things that we can do. And maybe we feel a bit um, hopeless around bigger changes, policy changes, and um, being able to influence people in leadership positions. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But when we when we let things slip into the shadows, as practitioners, we all know, what, and even even people who are not Dhamma practitioners, who are um, savvy and knowledgeable about human psychology, we know that when things get relegated to the shadows, when problems um, are, are kind of um, shoved down, we know what happens. They fester there. And the Buddha, in all of his wisdom, he said, you have to turn towards it. That's the first noble truth. There's suffering here. There are issues here. We have to look at them. We have to um, really be willing to open ourselves up to them and, and see where the clinging is, where the craving is, where the discontent is. So that we can work our way through it. And the result of that, on the one hand, very important result, is that we, we accept. And this is something we can learn from nature, too. There's an acceptance. But it doesn't mean that we just, you know, roll over and resign ourselves that's not the buddha's point his point is you fully take in where you are and then you do something about it so nature shows us that we not only face what's happening accept what's there but then we also really employ our ability to be resilient and to persevere 
I was reading um, Ajahn Chah's uh, biography, uh, the one that Ajahn Jayasaro wrote, Stillness Flowing. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend going to our website. I think it'll appear, the link will appear in the chat at some point, if not already. And I, I came across a story of when Ajahn Chah was wandering as a forest monk alone in the forest. And he did this for a long time, practicing on his own, really uh, living in nature. Of course, he'd walk for alms in villages. But there's a story where he had not had food for a, a few days, several days. He was walking in the mountains, and his legs were rubbery. and he was weak and he, um, a fever hit, he, he got a fever. And he, he just kind of laid down on the ground and he was thinking about, you know, he knew he had very little water with him and he, he was just kind of giving up. And then the thought came to him, that when he dies, if he dies there, someone will find him and they'll let his family know and then how inconvenient it will be for them to have to come for such a long way to get the body. And he, he looked into his, his, um, his bag and he got out his ID and he thought, okay, um, when things get really bad, I'll burn it or I'll, I'll um, destroy it. So they can't tell. So no one will know who, whose body this is. And as he was laying there, he heard this deer barking in the forest. And he said it caused him to think, well, do animals get sick? Of course they do. And what do they do? They don't have any doctors to take care of them. They don't have any injections to help them get better. And, and that kind of pulled him out of his despair. And he sat up and he drank a little bit of water and he started to meditate. Then he meditated through the night and then his fever broke and he was able to go on. And, you know, for him, wandering in the wilderness, being in nature, he was using everything that he encountered as a support for developing in the Dhamma. And that's what we all need to do. That there is nothing that happens to us is outside the Dhamma, if we choose to look at it in that way. That we too can be resilient and persevere. We too can take in and look at whatever is happening to us, whatever is coming up in the mind, whatever feelings arise in the body. We can put them in the context of Dhamma, including this little fly that's flying right in my face. <laughs> and you know, there's something we can learn there. And it helps to go out into nature to feel the hugeness of it, 
I think it helps to reflect on the fact that these fires that we're experiencing now are so enormous, so out of control for human beings with all of their equipment and chemicals, um, retardants and aircraft and everything. I mean, what I really noticed about this fire, so we had this fire um, here, as, as you probably know, near Boulder Creek. California, it burnt down Big Basin Park um, and I don't know, 90,000 acres or something. And that was a small one compared to some of the others happening east of San Jose and north of San Francisco. You know, we had, and we still do, have these raging fires also in Oregon. Um, and it's, they're huge. Uh, and what I noticed was that the firefighters were really, they did a great job, but there was no way they could control this fire for many, many days that it would be, you know, like 5% contained, 8% contained. Some days would pass with no more, you know, con uh, ability to contain it. And yet they were able to create lines where they would keep the fire at bay without actually being able to stop it. And at the end of the, I don't know, 35 days or whatever it was, um, every day we would listen, pretty much every day we would listen to the reports from CAL FIRE about, you know, in the morning and the evening about the, prog the progress that was being made, their intentions for the next shift, um, you know, what the evacuation and warning situations were, and we had evacuated we actually stayed with Anne and and Ed. Um, it was so wonderful. And this is another thing to consider for yourselves. We we have friends in the Dhamma. We have we have as human beings, uh, Dhamma practitioners practitioners or not, we have this tendency to help each other, and we have this ability to. To do a lot, even when things are really grim, to be of service, to be kind, to support each other. And it brings a kind of spiritual inspiration and uplift, um, a touching into what's larger than our life, than even this planet. But having said that, coming back to the firefighters, the chief one of the fire uh, chiefs that spoke every day talked at the end about a little bit about his career answering questions from an interviewer. And he had been a firefighter for 35 years and, and working for Cal Fire, I think, for that long. And he said that in the early years, they had a fire that was burned 2,000 acres. And he said, we all thought this is the uh, fire of a lifetime. We're never going to see this again. This is huge. This is like really, really uh, pushing us to, um, to, to strive um, to manage this fire. And then, of course, now we see fires that are, you know, so much larger. And he said that of the 10 largest fires in California, he has fought seven of them. 
and all 10 of those have been in the last 10 years. He was talking about, he said, call it global warming, call it climate change, call it whatever you want, but something has changed. Now we have these mega fires. And it's, it's important for us to pay attention, which I'm sure is like why you've joined this call today and you weren't like, oh no, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> because again, if we put it in the shadows, it grows. Even the simplest emotional sort of experience, if we push it into the shadows, it grows. If we bring it out into the daylight, it shrinks. We have a chance of managing it, of, of coming to it, of learning from it, of developing in ourselves as we help others and the situation. So there are a number of things that I, I hope to share with you around this. Um, one of them is, is a, a link about pandemics. And I'm including it here because it points to how pandemics arise, which it comes from nature, right? From um, animals or um, other living beings uh, with, with certain viruses or um, pathogens that then come into the human population. So the link I think is in your chat window and it's, um, it, it, talk, it says, How to Stop the Next Pandemic is the title, and it's a video that I would encourage you to watch. And they talk about how the number of pandemics has increased over the years. So there's always been, you know, pandemics that come through, but now we have them more often. And that it comes not just because people are doing something they probably shouldn't do or any of that, but it comes because we have so many people on the planet now and we are pushing so much farther into natural environments that you'll have like bats uh, living in a, in a forest setting where they're away from human beings. But then as the farms move out farther, we're c cutting the forest, the bats start to being closer and closer in their, their droppings go into the pig pens and then at, you know, the, the virus makes it into the pig population and from there into the human population. And so this too is about human behavior and how we are pressing in on natural environments and therefore touching into what then can be something that's quite dangerous for us. And so uh, you'll see in the video that there is a, um, an idea for how to, how to be proactive and ready for those pathogens as they become unleashed in the human population. So that's one thing to consider. And, and again, for me, this takes away some of the blame so that you know, we recognize that our actions, all of us collectively, bring about some of these situations. And it's not to blame ourselves, but to just see how naturally that comes about, given 
the fact that we do want comfort. We do want more family and children. And, you know, we've increased the population in, in quite an understandable way. It's not anyone else's fault. And it's, it's not to be taken as, oh, I'm so bad. This is important about karma that we recognize not to be, you know, not to introduce guilt and blame, but to just become more and more present and aware with the way things fall in cause and effect. This is how it is. Another thing I want to turn or point out, give you a link for, is um, a program that's called, well, it was the second annual Global Climate Restoration Forum that just happened in mid-September. And they really talk about wonderful solutions that people are, are and companies are developing. Uh, I would encourage that you look at the session number three, it's called Climate Restoration Solutions. And you see there that they have um, uh, uh, several companies talking about what they're developing. And in particular, there are solutions for pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So they've realized that it's not enough for us to just slow down our burning of fossil fuels although we need to do that more and more, and we are making progress, but that they also have ways of pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere so that we can turn back the, the clock, you might say, on the pollutants that exist in our atmosphere, that we can start to really make a difference with um, the rising of our global temperature. One of the solutions sounds um, almost, it's, it's, it sounds to me like a wonderful um, result. They, they take a certain kind of rock that comes from volcanoes. I think it's called olivolite or something like that. It's a green rock that's uh, very, very common. It's on every continent, easily mined because it's close to the surface. And if you crush the rock, and you put it on the beach, the ocean waves come and pull it into the ocean and pulverize it some more, and it causes a chemical reaction that pulls carbon dioxide, carbon, what is it? CO2 out of the air, <laughs> pulls it out of the atmosphere. And it also um, reduces the acidity in the ocean. They're, they're working on testing it now to make sure that it's harmless as far as they can tell. It's completely natural process. We've just accelerated by pulling the green rocks to the ocean and letting nature take its course. Uh, coral reefs, reefs revive, the, the acid reduces, the carbon comes out of the atmosphere and there's a restoration. So these kinds of solutions are very much um, an attempt to um, use the natural power of the environment to clean itself up. And this is part of what we see in nature. There is a kind of, it, it will take a long time if we allow nature 
even if we completely step out of the picture and stop producing pollutants, it will take a long time to recover, but maybe we can accelerate that in a dramatic way. There's another company that's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere in a different way and turning the carbon into building materials. It makes concrete much stronger and it's forever encapsulated there. So all of these things can be looked into to see like how, you know, solid is this work? It sounds really good. I mean, we've been told as long as I've been looking at the climate problem, we've been told we have the technology, but we don't have the political will. It took me a long time to figure out what that was a euphemism for. It's around politicization of climate, of the environmental problems, politicization of now we see the pandemic politi politicized. This is a very, very big problem because we, we need to look at these issues as something that we need to address as a human population, not ignore, um, lie about and pretend it's not there or that it's not caused by what we do because we need to, we can change this. We can change this. So we don't have to be partisan about it either. We need to depoliticize these issues and recognize that People with all different kinds of political ideologies have in the past been interested in mitigating climate change. And I'm sure people with all different kinds of political views want to work through this pandemic in a way that's gonna be beneficial for everyone. And so we need to encourage policymakers because it has also become clear that our individual efforts, while helpful, aren't enough. That what we need is broad policy to change things. It's something that we really have to pull together on. And one of the quotes that I wrote down, let me see where I have it. Hmm, I may not have it in front of me. Let's check. I need a quote that came. Yeah, I don't have it here. But the gist of it is this um, person who is, let me see, maybe I, uh, no, it's not going to be on this computer. Okay. The person, one of the people who's working in the company, actually the head of the company that's pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into building materials. He said that California legislation on climate change is the best in the world. He said it is the, he's from Canada. This company is in Canada. He said California is the most forward looking, the most creative. And, and the, the legislation that we now have in California is the best. So it's something we, as if you're in California, um, congratulate yourself because we've encouraged this in our government. And if you're not in California, then we can encourage the people that are making policy to look to what California has been doing as a way to go forward and to really make a difference. And so there is a lot that we can do. We can, we can do it from our, um, our living room, 
like we're doing everything else these days. <laughs> uh, some of the people at this um, global forum talked about how they were concerned in the beginning with the pandemic that people would really drop uh, interest in the environment. And they said, that's really not what's happening. Maybe because people have more time or maybe because we, we have um, the, the resources to reach out more over the internet, but people are doing things that we can actually you know, do. We can encourage companies, we can encourage our political uh, representatives, and we can talk about what's really happening. And we can learn. As practitioners of the Dhamma, we can learn what all of this has to teach us about letting go, about tuning into our own internal resources, to relying on the Buddha, Dhamma, and enlightened Sangha for our grounding and support, our refuge, and that we can take that level by level, not just for a, a better situation in the world, but also for our own awakening. So now we have 45 minutes and I hope you have a lot to say because a lot of times it's what you say that you're gonna remember and other people will remember. And that actually a lot of times it's questions that bring the deeper Dhamma out into the open. So I'm gonna look to Aya Chitananda who's on the other side of the screen, and um, she can tell me whose hand is up. If you could raise your hand on the computer. I know it's in different places for different people on the program, but Anne has her hand up. Anne, go ahead. Um, so I just want to say thank you. Um, it's so sweet to see you sitting there and the redwood trees blowing and a butterfly went by. It's just really precious. So first of all, thank you for that. And practically, I'd like to know how we can copy from the chat. And um, that's a technical question. Or I don't, th I think the chat goes away at the end, but I want to um, try and copy some of those resources so I can follow on. Um, I think if you just select them and copy the way you would ordinarily copy something. Does that work, Aya? Yes, that's the way to do it. Okay. Just do your usual copy-paste magic. Okay, fine. Then I have to not lose you because if I, if I, anyway, fine, thank you. Okay. I think you won't lose me. Okay. Um, does everybody know how to pull up the chat window? I think there's an icon at the bottom of the screen that says chat. And I think there you'll see the things Oh, there's one more thing I'd like to mention, um, and this is important. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Lester Brown. Uh, he's an incredible um, agronomy ecology, economist. <laughs> anyway, he has the incredible background as uh, in farming in uh, economics and in the environmental. Um, sciences 
and he was a policymaker for decades and an advisor to policymakers. And he wrote a series of books, a long series, and many books about climate change and what we need to do. His books, uh, the one that I think I found most helpful was Plan B. Uh, it was revived a few, revised a few times, um, but it, he really lays out in a very good way what we need to do. He had identified a four-pronged approach. One, reducing our carbon emissions dramatically. Um, he said it's important to eliminate poverty in order to have a stable environment. I found that incredibly uplifting. And, you know, from our perspective with um, kindness and compassion, what a wonderful thing it would be to eliminate poverty. And I know we're living in Sangsara. How, how useful or how possible is this? We're never going to be able to eliminate greed, hatred, and delusion in this realm. However, there's a lot we can do if that becomes a priority uh, for our nations. And it's good to read what he has to say about it and how that has a strong impact on the environment to, to eliminate poverty and, and also to stabilize world population growth. And one of the things that's very inspiring about that is it's really related to a large degree in how women are treated in our world and how much um, if, we're, if women are educated, if women are given a say in their government, uh, then they, they have fewer children. If they're given good medical care, um, they will have fewer children. Their children will be more likely to survive. And uh, it's, it's a positive um, movement all around to to uplift women. And then uh, the fourth piece of Lester Brown's program is to restore our nat natural systems, <clears throat> our oceans, our forests, our farmland, um, our air, that, that when we restore these, of course, that's, a, that's an absolute, absolutely essential. So there we have the map. I mean, that was what he was doing with much of his life force over the decades. He's now 86, I think. He retired five years ago at 81. Um, and he's, um, what he has left or what he has given us is incredibly important as a roadmap to, to recovery from the, um, the deviation that has been kind of driving us off the road here uh, into uh, dangerous territory. I think you also might find in the chat window the reference to stillness flowing. If you don't have it, um, it if it's not there, it will be. Ah, at the bottom of the chat window, there's three little dots and you can select save chat and then you can just have it all right there for you. Yeah, great. Okay, what else do you have to say? Comments, complaints, 
questions, whatever. Just raise your hand. <clears throat> or if you're on the phone, uh, you can unmute yourself with star six. And I don't know if you if you can can they unmute themselves? Yeah, you can unmute yourself if you want to speak. Or if you raise your hand, we can call on you. One of the things I noticed when I was traveling and staying in monasteries in Ajahn Chah's um, collection of monasteries is that when, when you're sitting around with a bunch of monks and nobody has anything to say, everybody just sits there. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so we can uh, wait. Good morning, it's Michael. Hi, Michael. Thank you for your sweet talk. I really appreciate it and resonated very much with how much nature is a wonderful teacher and um, it's not in our control. <laughs> and um, I also loved how you weaved in the Dharma. And one of my concerns about the Buddhist community is the lack of veganism. And um, basically, um, I haven't been to the Thai Forest Monastery, so I have no idea how they roll. But Thich Nhat Hanh, since I think 1998, it's all vegan. But most of our meditation centers in the community is not, and some even bring in like meat stuff. And as someone who um, knows how harmful the um, commercial and meat industry is to our earth, it just surprises me and saddens me. And then lastly, I wanted to share, there is a um, microbiome soil sweet speaker on environment envir environmentalism and biodiversity. His name is Zach Bush, MD, and I found him very, very sweet because not all, most of the vegans aren't, they're kind of angry. And um, he's just like kind of an angel and he doesn't even talk about plant-based eating. He just talks about farming and the earth and, um, climate change and and other tidbits so deep bows to you all and thank you for letting me share thank you michael that was really useful um i'll say a couple of words about uh, monasteries and um, veganism and vegetarianism um i don't know how many of you know that this was a, a a big point of contention at the time of the Buddha. 
uh, it was Devadatta, his cousin, who wanted to take over the Sangha uh, from the Buddha, who made vegetarianism a, a, a political issue. And he was trying to divide the group based on that. Because, of course, there is a, a definite pull from, you know, even though um, the Buddha said it's, it's not against the moral precepts to eat meat. Um, of course, when we keep the five precepts and perhaps the, the 227 or the 311 of, of fully ordained monastics, your wish to not harm can be a very strong uh, motivator to vegetarianism or veganism. And in fact, uh, many of you may know in the Chinese tradition, it's very, very uh, strongly held um, veganism in the monasteries. But in Thai, Thai forest tradition, um, you know, this, this Thailand um, for a long time it would be considered a developing country. And um, I think it's probably graduated to the next, um, the next distinction in that regard. But a lot of people, <laughs> especially, again, the forests in Northeast Thailand, where Ajahn Chah, <coughs> excuse me, where Ajahn Chah was, um, people eat everything because they're poor. And uh, there was one day when I was in a small branch monastery when I had my bowl and I was going, um, being uh, given food. And the main dish was this soup that had all these tiny little frogs in it. I mean, these frogs had to be like the size of a quarter. But the whole body, the whole frog, it was just, it was frog soup with the whole body in there. That day I ate bananas and sticky rice, <laughs> um, <clears throat> primarily, I think. And so it's not a, a requirement that people be vegan or vegetarian, but in individual monasteries, we can make that choice. So Karuna Buddhist Vihara is a vegetarian monastery. We have not been uh, vegan I personally find having eggs sometimes and dairy sometimes really helpful. And I know this is a kind of like personal choice or oftentimes, you know, we're, um, you know, kind of like we have to make some compromises sometimes because of health. But to have it in mind that this is, um, this is an issue especially the way things farming is, you know, when I talked about farming, the changes in farming in my lifetime have been enormous. The, when I was growing up, that was when we were starting to move to factory farming. And, and during um, my youth, I, we saw many, many family farms, um, you know, dissolving into huge agribusiness organizations. There was one insurance company that was buying up all this farmland and then they they would farm it in ways who are much less sensitive to the environment um, and and all <laughs> families with wells around the edge of their vast properties would go dry because they're irrigating areas that should really be left on on uh, on worked i would say you know 
not cultivated. And so there are all these in, in the factory farming coming, um, be, becoming more and more of the, the routine way, packing so many animals into tight spaces that you have uh, so many problems with disease and you're pumping them with all kinds of medicines and chemicals. And you know, it's just a real, it's a real problem. So the degree to which we can reduce our, our meat and dairy consumption, I think, is important, and also to not be judgmental about it. Um, I became a vegetarian vegetarian in that environment where people ate meat three times a day, usually, um, when I was in my early 20s, and it was it was still it was because I didn't want to eat meat. I didn't like it. Well, that's fair enough, but. It's not, it's not what it's true for everyone. And, and I think it's a very, very personal choice. So as long as we are sensitive to the ramifications of our actions and make our choices with that in mind, there's no perfect solution to practically anything. We live in an environment, in a world that has dark and light come up. It's a mix, it's an incredibly complicated mix. And we can't, we can't extricate ourselves in a way that's pure. Only our minds, our intention, our letting go of grasping, of selfing, of my making and I making, that's the only way the mind is really purified. And, and our actions will then become less and less harmful for the world. So thank you for that reflection, Michael. It's a huge help to the environment, even to reduce our meat consumption to like once or twice a week. And then in observing what it does to the body, um, that was how I got started. I'd eat meat I, just two meals a week. And then I could see that like the 24 hours after eating a meat meal, I would get really hot. Like, you know, it has an effect on the body and, and your body adjusts. So it takes a little time. Some people try vegetarianism or veganism and throw up their hands after a week or two. Um, you got to give it a little more if you really want to see if your body is able to adjust and be healthy and happy. Um, just some thoughts. No hands. Forrest, please go ahead. Hi, Aya. Um, Hi. So I have a question about um, what you said about making change in policy, um, mm -hmm. advocating for policies or calling lawmakers or that kind of thing. One of my fears around that is I feel like a lot of times policy seems like the ramifications are really complex and I don't want to be ignorant. And like when I was in San Francisco, I would vote on all the props and like you know, I don't really know what the ramifications are, even if they sound good. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, like, realistically, how, like, easy is it to go about being informed enough to make good decisions? Because I know I could spend, like, a lot of time educating myself, but I also don't know if that's the best use of my time. Well, I will share what my solution is, because it's probably pretty obvious that, um, our intention in the holy life is to spend most of our energy and, and focus on Dhamma, uh, both in practice and study. So I too, like you, do not feel like I understand 
all the ins and outs of the props um, and and other things about candidates. But I have good friends who are very active in in the political scene, who have really researched. And even when I when we don't have anyone um, immediately available, uh, like when we lived in downtown Mountain View, we knew that the couple on the corner had been very active in the local politics. And so we went to visit. And I find that, you know, if you find people who have a similar ideology to yours, so that you can feel pretty confident that they're looking at the issues from a perspective that you can align with, that you appreciate, that you feel is sound. And then use their, um, we're in this together. We all can't know everything. I know we've really realized that, that <laughs> we are in a world of diverse, um, diverse uh, um, education and, and experience, and we have to help each other. So that's what I would advise, you know, find people who are really in the know. They can, um, they can kind of digest it for you like a mother bird <laughs> and, and feed you what you need <laughs> to know what to do uh, in a responsible way. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, Anne? So I just want to um, agree with you on the last point and, and also understand Forrest's position. I mean, there are so many propositions and there is so much to know. Um, and so um, I rely on a nonprofit, Tuolumne River, Tr River Trust. I think that's what it's called. And they're really good on water policy. And, you know, we don't hear much about water policy, but it's really crucial in California mm -hmm. and in the Bay Area. So, you know, I will follow their lead. Um, and actually, that's one of the um, environmental groups that I donate to because there are so many groups to donate to. So that, that to find, you know, it could be it could be any environmental group that you know about and, and select. And similarly, you know, in terms of the poverty and the women's, um, the importance of women um, in this whole thing, um, Buddhist Global Relief is the charity that I support because they just have really I, I just trust their their um, approach. So, um, just to support Aya's thing about find a place and focus. We don't have to know everything. We can't know everything. So, thank you. And yes, and Buddhist Global Relief right now are uh, they're in a fundraising. They usually uh, have their events in October. Um, and so one o'clock today, there's gonna be an online event um, that would usually be a march or a walk in Berkeley. And Buddhist Global Relief is a, is a really good organization for um, doing practical things at, a, at a, an amazingly wonderful level um, to help the environment. So, uh, it was started by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and some of his students, um, I think back in 2008, perhaps. And and when I looked at, I was I was really interested in the climate um, problems, and I looked at the projects that they had, and this might have been in 2010 or something. And I and I saw that their their projects 
very much address those four points that Lester Brown makes. They help people develop sustainable farming methods, so improving the way we produce food and storage and uh, bringing food security to poor, the poorest people. And also they do a lot to promote women's education and, um, and um, women learning how to um, develop skills that they can, that they can market um, <clears throat> and lifting them up out of poverty because when you help women in a village um, either start businesses uh, that we've found are very successful, can be very successful, and uh, or gain an education, as I said before, it really helps. And women have a tendency to to get their education and then help their village. So when, when you educate a woman, it helps her children to also eventually gain an education. Um, it starts a very positive cycle. She helps her family, she helps her village, she helps her country. And, and it's not about me and, and going after some uh, great gain for the self. Uh, most of the time, the women are really uh, super changers of their whole environment, their whole village can be uplifted because of, of one woman. And so this is something that Buddhist Global Relief focuses on. They also focus on, sometimes on direct food aid, pulling people out of some of the most dire conditions to just sustain life. Um, there's another, there's another, like, what is it? Uh, there's another focus that they do. I can't remember at the moment. But it's, it's like if you look at their, their uh, program, the, the, um, the projects that they select to support, you'll see an active uh, grassroots uh, support of the environment. And that is powerful. Uh, and I've shared with some of you before, I, I found for myself, I couldn't give to all these different organizations that ask for money, even though they have very good causes. So I would try to find one that really aligned with what I felt was important and get deeply involved in it. And if we're involved in it, we know how the money gets spent. And we know, we know what they're actually doing. Because you know, even, even organizations that have a very good mission, um, they might have gotten a little off base administratively. And they have to be aware of that and, and make, make sound wise choices and rely on other people that we trust who know more about the issues that, that we're looking at. Do you have any Dhamma lessons in your life from nature that you would like to share? Olivia, please go ahead. Thank you, Aya. Um, I have a question, not a lesson yet, <laughs> maybe in a year. Um, the question I have is around where this balance of one's time, it actually came up this morning as well on 
uh, I, I was reading on Sutta Central, people were talking about the just really ridiculous amount of poverty that the world is in. And this kind of balance between giving our time and our energy to the Dhamma and our own awakening and the awakening of others. Um, and then the time and energy that we spend uh, and money um, on things that are in the, of the direct material well-being, um, whether that's the environment, poverty, education, which I think all go together as you've discussed, but sort of, it's been a sort of existential question of mine for a while, having gone to, you know, and probably a lot of people on this call or in, in the Buddhist world have been educated in like a liberal um, environment. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on activism and yeah, I don't know how to strike that balance or like if the Buddha had words specifically around that. I think the, the way to hold it is that we make everything that we do a gift. So we, we, we work with the heart and where the heart is, where our intention is with whatever we're doing. And as we do that, if we are really practicing in that way, selfless, then we notice when our own desires and cravings arise and we notice when we want to be greedy or uh, we become um, averse or um, angry or any, when any defilement comes in, we see it and we, we work with um, seeing the harm and letting that go, purifying the mind. And so um, I, I really like, I mean, the Buddha lived this way. He took time to be in retreat and he spent most of his time available to help people. And it's uh, when we um, visit Ajahn Ganha, every day he talks about giving. Every day he talks about, you know, make, make everything that you're doing a gift because it is, it can be, even when you're sitting in meditation, even when you're, you're uh, watering your plants, even when you're, you know, like, um, you know, smile. Uh, well, now the smiles have to come from the eyes mostly to, <laughs> to people uh, encouraging words in the right direction. And um, yes, we can take action, but the decision about when and how comes more, more um, soundly solidly, wisely from stillness in the mind, from uh, taking that time to ground ourselves and to recognize that keeping precepts is a gift. Meditating is a gift. And he said, we don't have to do, you know, five or six hours a day. We can do an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And I know a lot of times when we're working full time, that's, that's not possible either but whatever amount of time we can give it. And then there is time. We, we weave the, the work for the world into the work we do for the company, 
or the work we do for our own households. And, and it's, it's wisdom that we use to guide us in making the decisions. I mean, sometimes we can come to a place where we're really um, able to tune in intuitively, like what's the right thing to be focused on right now? And it's not so much about a thinking process or a planning process, but it's a feeling process. If our intentions are, are good, we will have a better idea of what that should be. So I know it's not like, um, you know, there's some formula that's perfect for everybody, but it's, it's really that there is a method a way of approaching this question. Andy, go ahead. Um, hi, Aya. I don't know if my audio is kind of chaotic or if you can understand me. I can understand you. Okay. Where are you? Um, uh, we are going for a COVID testing, so everyone in the family, so yeah, <laughs> we are driving okay. to the, the testing. And okay. one question that arose is that um, how can we face these uh, people that maybe our friends, our family, who kind of say things like racist or misogynist or against the idea of climate change uh, you know without it's because I, I don't know I have a policy of non-tolerance to that but I also have a policy of compassion so um, I don't know how to face it sometimes yeah thank you Andy that's a good question you know what I what I think we can do is the, the policy of non-tolerance, I think, is good, but then we have to be kind of prepared and ready for the way in which we express that in the world so that it's, as you say, compassionate, it's understanding. Um, and the best way that I've found is that we say something, but nothing harsh. That what we say is something like, um, you know, if, if someone says something that to us, as far as we know, is not true. All we have to say is, I don't believe that. We don't have to say it in a harsh way. We can just say, I don't believe that. And that that's just a statement about what you think or what you feel. And no one can argue with that. They might try to convince you, but you can just calmly, hopefully, calmly, um, respond with what you actually know if they do want to talk about it. And the Buddha was very much, um, even for, especially for the monastics, uh, in, he made rules against teaching the Dhamma without being asked. You know, we cannot go out on the street corner with a sign and start proclaiming the Dhamma. Uh, we are not allowed to try to um, correct someone uh, in a way that's like, I know what's right, and you, I'm going to tell you about it without the invitation to talk. So what we can do is ask a question, or like the Buddha did many times, he'd see someone practicing in a way that was fruitless, and he would ask them what they're doing and why. He didn't just come out with, 
that's a fruitless uh, activity. What's the matter with you? You just don't know the Dhamma, do you? Here you go. This is the way it is. <laughs> that, that was not his approach. <laughs> and it obviously wouldn't have worked if it were. So, you know, it's like um, we can have the non-tolerance, but we can also have the patience and the compassion. And that will save us from becoming... Um, becoming exactly what we don't want, exactly what we don't like, um, strident, angry Buddhists or strident, angry vegetarians. I used to, and vegans. I worked in a company where every year at Thanksgiving, there was one person who would send out these horrible messages about how terrible it is that people eat turkey and they were very um, bloody and gory. Um, messages and and it was just such a turnoff for everybody uh, and and it's not helpful. We have to check where is my heart. If we can bring our heart to a place of compassion and understanding, doesn't mean we have to agree. Wisdom has to be there to know what's good and what's not good, wholesome and not wholesome. And then from that, say a little bit and see if there's an interest in learning more. And from that, we say enough to let people know that we don't agree. This is not, um, you know, in accord with the Dhamma. The Buddha would say that. This is the, that's not the way we do it in the noble one's discipline. And then so this person's in, interested. Okay, how do you do it in the noble one's discipline? But if they're not interested, if they walk away saying, I don't agree with that. And the Buddha, this happened, you know, I don't agree with that. This one man went outside the gates of the monastery. There were a bunch of men sitting around gambling. And he comes to them and he says, what do you think about this? And they say, oh, this is what we think. And it's the opposite of what the Buddha had said. And he says, yeah, I go with the gamblers. I believe them. It's like, okay, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> Just let that go. The Buddha wasn't tracking people down to try to get them to hear. And he wasn't, he wasn't um, making himself unhappy or miserable because people don't, don't realize. But even if in the moment, it looks like, you know, if, you, if someone's making a racist comment, and you make some gentle statement like, you know, I really, for me, I cannot say that. I cannot say to someone of color, get over it. I cannot say to someone, you know, about someone this thing um, that's, that's mean or hateful or hurtful. And I don't even have to identify it as mean, hateful or hurtful. I could say, I could not say that. Or, you know, something that lets them know, and they may just, like, react negatively, act like they don't, they don't care, like you're being foolish or naive, but you never know what they think about later. Later, it might sink in. Just hold your ground and be patient and clear. Thanks, Aya. And and I hope everyone in the car is is um, are they hearing all this? Oh no, because I have earphones. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> I I don't know if I can make a follow up if there's anyone who wants to ask a question, so to make a follow up of this question. 
I don't know. We'll see. Thank you. Yeah. So I hope everyone um, is clear of COVID, and uh, and I hope that the whole uh, journey and testing uh, turn out to be um, reassuring and easy. Thank you. You're welcome. I think there are quite a few people who have wanted to go eat lunch or something, <laughs> which I hope is uh, nice and easy on the environment. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I want to, I want to really express my appreciation for Anne and um, the work that she's doing with IMC and the Eco Chaplaincy and encourage people. There's, there are many ways that you can find to, um, oh, I didn't understand that. Maybe Lynn is right. Andy, did you have a follow-up question? Oh, I'm sorry, I missed that. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I don't know if I can make it. Sure. Okay. Uh, oh, there's a lot of sound. Um, okay, I'm trying to remember the question. Ah, uh, for example, how, uh, in the Buddhist point of view, how can we face the, all these protests that I really agree with the protests? And here, for example, in Mexico, there's been a lot of uh, protests uh, about women, and they also do some graffiti and all this stuff, and people just blame them, no? As if they were the ones of the problem. And, but mm -hmm. it's this issue about violence can't be solved with more violence, but I really uh, say that, okay, if you want to prevent uh, these things, you should ensure uh, justice. So I don't know how to face that issue about process, having violence, and being empathic with the, with the people. It's a really hard problem, I know, and it may take a long time. Um, as I'm sure you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an incredible force in, in the U.S. Uh, to, to bring about more justice with regards to gender and um, the oppression of women. Um, and it's a, it's a very long process. And even when gains are made, then there are elements to that, that push back and roll back some of the progress that's made. And, and I, I know, um, first and foremost, protect yourself, try to stay out of situations where you encounter people who have such ignorance and hatred and, um, you know, and delusion. Uh, so it's like, first and foremost, try to protect yourself. And then if you find um, any, any way to um, connect with other people who have your same views uh, and, and see if there's something that can be done um, <clears throat> to help bring about a different point of view, uh, and we do see that societies change. And uh, it all starts with individuals. 
and you know at first one person maybe and then a few more come together and gradually over time uh, they can really make a difference and make changes but it's it's good to not get so caught up in the de- in the defilements that are manifest in these situations because there's only so much we can do and um and then hopefully in mexico there will come a time when women are more protected and more respected and you know if you can find people who have those values and have that interest always try to come to it from a place of peace because as you mentioned um anger and violence while it may feel like we're strong it, we're strong we're not and um if we can find other people who keep the values of being peaceful and kind even though pushing against these wrong ideas and terrible actions um that's that's how we need to proceed and to not have high expectations about how quickly that will happen so that's why it's important protect yourself as much as you can at the same time that's about all i know on on that on that count you know we can um wish for um a more pure world and we can make a difference where we are and even quite far reaching but it is sansara and greed hatred and delusion is part of what we're here experiencing so um we have to just accept that reality too it doesn't mean we're complacent um or get, never give up never give up sorry i didn't understand right away i hope that answered your question yeah yes thank you you're welcome so it's 12 o'clock and i i want to again thank everyone for for being online and um for your practice i i really wish you strength and peace and um endurance and uh ways of finding support in everything that you do for the benefit of developing your own mind and heart and i think i'd like to just chant a uh, a blessing for all of you remember that everything that you do that's good um makes benefit in the world um uh, first of all at that time you're not doing anything to drag the world down you're doing things to build the world up in a good way and also that you can bring to mind anyone that you'd like to share the merit of your of your practice with so i'll just chant a blessing and i think most of you know what these words mean um May you have every good blessing may all the devas protect you by the power of all the buddhas may you ever be well 
May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you by the power of all the Dhamma. May you ever be well. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you by the power of all the Sangha. May you ever be well. May all of the natural world benefit from our efforts. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.